Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41, this is what God's word says. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city that is Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, We ask now that as we have turned our attention to your word, that by your spirit you would reveal to us your glory as we now together look into the face of Jesus Christ. Help us to behold your glory, to see you and to see the wonder of the gospel, even through a heavy and somber text as this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time in our study of Luke's gospel, we saw in the past is just before this one, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, also known as Palm Sunday. And on this day, the beginning of what would be called the Passion Week, uh, Jesus entered on this day into the city, as you recall, riding on a donkey, declaring himself to be the Messiah, the king of all kings. And of course, this was to fulfill the words of the prophet Zechariah about 500 years before, as he prophesied, Rejoice, Jerusalem, for your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey. And so by entering Jerusalem on a, a, mounted on a donkey, Jesus was effectively being coronated as king. This Palm Sunday ordeal was his royal procession, as it were, an event that was overflowing with jubilee and triumph as the multitude of his disciples rejoiced with loud praises. But as Jesus made his way closer and closer into the city, riding on that donkey, and as he drew near to the gates, and when his eyes saw the city of Jerusalem, There was no jubilee in his heart. Instead, to the surprise of those around him, Jesus suddenly began to weep. And it's not that he just shed a few sentimental tears. No, Jesus was sobbing. Why? Because he knew that this city would reject him as the Messiah and Savior. And because of their rejection and unbelief, the judgment of God, the fierce judgment of God would come upon the city in about 40 years from then, in the year 70 AD, when the Roman army under Titus would utterly destroy Jerusalem and slaughter the Jewish people. That historic event is what Jesus is prophesying here on Palm Sunday and weeping over because he knew the horror it would be for them. Now, what a shock it must have been to the disciples who were ecstatic about the parade. I mean, they were elated, uh, celebrating Jesus as their king. And yes, Jesus did come to be the king of kings, but he also came to be 
the prophet of prophets. And what we see here is the fullness of what Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, prefigured. Remember in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, he watched Jerusalem being destroyed and burned to the ground by the Babylonian Empire in 586 B.C. Because of the nation's unrepentance, despite all the warnings that God sent to them by his prophets, centuries after centuries. But in their insistence on unrepentance and unbelief, God sent his judgment that he promised. And as Jeremiah witnessed with his own eyes the destruction of that once holy city, he wept over Jerusalem and prophesied in tears. And in fact, it was Jeremiah who also wrote the book of Lamentations as he lamented over Jerusalem's downfall and massacre. And now 600 years after that, here is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the very incarnation of the book of Lamentations, if you will. And on Palm Sunday, our Lord doesn't revel in his kingly glory, but he laments over the unbelief of the people. But mind you, he's not weeping for his own sake, as though Jesus was sad because they rejected him, because he needed their affirmation. No, he wept for their sake. He wept over the wrath that would be poured upon them in their unbelief. Friends, the tears of Christ preached to us this morning. And in his tears, we see a a marvelous purity of God's glory and attributes. Namely, that God's wrath upon unrepentant sinners is not some outburst of dark and uncontrollable rage of an angry tyrant. God is not like man. God's wrath is a weeping wrath. His anger is a holy anger of perfect light that is inseparable from his holy love and compassion. Christ weeps over the wrath to come upon the unbelieving because he so sincerely desires for all to take refuge in him and be saved from his unbearable and righteous judgment. He, he so genuinely has their best interest in mind and heart. You see, in the tears of Jesus' lamentation, we find all of the convincing that his call to repentance and faith in him is out of the pure, perfect goodwill towards sinners. That is to say that when Jesus calls sinners to turn to him by faith, it's not because he needs anything from them. He needs and he's dependent on their allegiance. But he is thinking of them. It's for, for their sake to bless them with life and joy and peace found in him alone. And I mean, even here, look at this picture of holy love that at this moment, while seated on the donkey, Jesus is not indulging in the honor of his own coronation, but he is thinking of his unbelieving enemies, considering their welfare even before his own. Notice what Jesus says as he weeps. He says, and when he drew near the city and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now, why does Jesus phrase it like this? Why is there an emphasis? Oh, that you, even you, speaking to the city of Jerusalem, even you. Well, it's because of the tragic irony that Jerusalem, by its very name, was the city of peace. The Salem in Jerusalem, 
is the word shalom, which means peace. And the entire name probably means something like foundation of peace. And what a fitting name, obviously, in the Old Testament, because Jerusalem was God's temple where he manifested his presence. And it was in this one city on earth that the living God revealed himself to the people of Israel and he walked among them. And so it was in this city that true peace on earth could be found because there was the knowledge of the one true God. And fellowship between God and man, that is the definition of peace. The whole world is clamoring for world peace, but they don't want the God who brings them peace. Because only in God and fellowship with God and reconciliation with God is there true peace on earth. But you see, Jerusalem was heaven's embassy on earth. The the people of Israel had every spiritual privilege of knowing the one true God. And so for this city, for for Jerusalem to reject their God who came down to them as man, there was no greater insult to God's glory. The, The ones who were supposed to be nearest to him were the very ones to repudiate him. As John 1.11 says, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. His own Jewish people rejected him. What a dishonor then to Jesus, the Son of God. And yet even so, what is at the forefront of his mind and heart is not his own honor and welfare, but the welfare of those who have rejected him. And so he cries out, would, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. It's the expression, if only you had known how I wish you had known that I am the Prince of Peace. I came to reconcile sinners to God. I came that in and through me you would have peace with God. Oh, that you would have known such a peace. It's for your sake that I came. But alas, you, you refuse to come to me that you may have life, as Jesus said to the Pharisees. And so Jesus grieves over their unbelief because by it they are choosing death. They are rejecting life. But again, notice that through this grief, how clearly we see the sincerity of God's desire to give what is good to undeserving sinners. It pleases him to give life to the perishing. That in his most tender compassion, God desires for sinners to be saved and not suffer judgment. Or to put it another way, it does not please God to see sinners perish in their sin and experience his wrath. He, his wrath is satisfied. His justice is satisfied. And yet at the same time, it doesn't please him. Because he does not glory in destruction and death because he is the God of life. As God says in Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Why would you choose death? And it's in the same spirit that Jesus laments, Oh, Jerusalem, if only you had known on this day, on this day of visitation, of God coming to them as man, if only you had recognized me as the one who came to his own people. 
If only you knew and received the things that would bring you true peace with God, that is the forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith in me. But why would you go this way of death? It is so self-destructive and irrational to reject Jesus and the salvation found in him. Which all begs the question, why did the Jews reject Jesus? I mean, if we could boil it down to one main kernel thing, why did they reject their own Messiah? It's because they were proud. It was pride. They assumed that they had peace with God already by virtue of the fact that they were Jews. They were people of good religion and moral decency, the chosen people of God who had special favor with God simply because of their bloodline and background and DNA. They already had God's favor, so they thought. And so they were interested more in a Messiah who would give them anything and everything but the forgiveness of sins because they didn't need it. Now, this mode of thinking is not unique to first century Jews. It, it, it actually, the same goes for today. You know, in our society, the majority of those who reject Jesus, it's not because they are the most vile people on earth who despise all and everything that is good. But it's because they think that they're good already. And so they have no interest and urgency in the salvation Jesus offers to them. It's not so much, I despise Jesus, therefore I reject him. But it's, I don't need Jesus, therefore I reject him. Because I'm a religious man. Or I'm a good woman, a good citizen. I have moral values. I try my best to live a decent life. I worked hard all my life. I'm diligent. I was responsible. I took care of my family. I'm, I'm a good person. Of course God accepts me. How could he not? How can he reject me? In fact, God owes me good things now. And whatever good things are to come in the life to come, if there is one. That's how the world thinks today. And it's this self-righteous pride that blinded the Jews during Jesus' day. They couldn't fathom the notion that they were in fact sinners, truly deserving of God's judgment. And when Jesus called everyone, including Jews, to acknowledge their sinfulness and their wretchedness and cling to Christ for mercy, not merit, it was offensive to them, as it is to many today, because no one likes to be told that they are bad people. We're all good people inside. I mean, of course, we just make some mistakes, but no one's perfect. But I'm good, just not perfect. Well, you know, in the eyes of God, that's an oxymoron. Because good is defined and measured by God who is perfect and holy. Anything less than the perfect purity of goodness is not good. It's contaminated with bad and evil. See, unless you have lived a life of sinless obedience, perfection, you are a guilty sinner. But therein is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to accomplish sinless obedience on behalf of guilty sinners like you and me. Sinners who confess that they are sinners and they trust in his work, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Only Jesus' perfect life is righteous enough before God. 
And only when we repent of our sinful lives do we receive the gift of Jesus' righteousness and all the blessings of being in Christ. But what a profound stumbling block to the sinful heart that people are too proud to admit that they are not good people. They are too proud to acknowledge that they can never atone for their sins and that they need undeserved mercy. And it's that stubborn pride that leads so many souls down to ruin. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. People reject the gospel because they are too proud, just like Jerusalem in Jesus' day. And yet again, in the face of such pride, what a marvel that Jesus' primary emotion in response to their arrogance and their callous stubbornness is not anger, but deep pity and sympathy. For every unbelieving soul in this room and outside these doors who refuse to surrender their pride and humble themselves before Christ, the Lord is moved to grief. Because in His genuine love and sympathy for their souls, He he places His feet in their shoes, as it were, and weeps for them because of the judgment that they'll have to endure. And that's true sympathy, isn't it? That's love sincere. You know, one of the great temptations of our time as Christians in the face of an increasingly godless world is to look at it and to respond with anger at the unbelieving world and to despise them for their godless ways. But church, that is spiritual pride. And instead, we ought to grieve. Just as God looked upon that most wicked city that was Nineveh, and he said to Jonah concerning them, Should I not pity Nineveh, those who do not know their right hand from their left hand? What a holy compassion. You know, God saw everything. With their hands, they were committing great atrocities and abominations against God. Listen, no one was more offended by the Ninevites than God. Jonah thought he was the most offended by anybody. And he was offended that God wasn't offended enough, or so he thought. No, God was offended like you couldn't imagine. And yet, as God looked upon those very wicked hands, God says, they're so lost, they don't know what they're doing with those hands. And for that, I pity them. And so he called Jonah to go preach to them. Church, in times such as these, the godliest believer is the one who has the softest heart for the lost, the proud, the wicked. On a similar note, if I can speak to the parents in this room who are believers, one of the great mistakes we can make as Christian parents is if our children do not yet know the Lord, Or God forbid, one day they want to walk away from the church. Is to respond to all of this by being angry with them. 
But to do so is perhaps because in those moments of anger, we reveal that we are more disappointed that our personal expectations of having Christian children has not been met. Rather than responding in the most loving sorrow, because we care purely for their souls and not for our expectations or even our good desires. And knowing that they don't ultimately belong to us with prayerful tears, we ought to then entrust them into God's merciful hands. We must be like our Lord. Tender grief will convey more of Christ's love and character than every frown of disappointment or frustration. And at the end of the day, that's what they need to see. The beauty of Christ himself. The one who is so gentle and lowly in heart that even at his royal procession, he would humiliate himself unto a public spectacle of sobbing for the sake of love and pity for sinners. Because judgment day was at hand for Jerusalem. As Jesus cries out, would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now, this doesn't mean that God was unfairly withholding the gospel from them. No, Jesus preached his gospel to them for more than three years all over the land of Israel. They had the truth revealed to them in plain sight repeatedly this entire time. But as they insisted on shutting their eyes to the truth, God was now giving them over to their willful blindness because the time of preaching is not forever. The sirens of warnings are to go off until the disaster strikes. And so when God's judgment comes, there will be no more opportunity to come to the light. And that's why looking ahead to that day of judgment in AD 70, Jesus was saying, that the light of the gospel hope will be hidden from your eyes because there is a point of no return that is coming, a point of no repentance being possible any longer. But listen, until that very hour, he would continue to call them still to repentance and faith. Look at what Jesus does next. After this lamentation, down in verse 47, after entering the temple, driving everyone out, what does it say? He was teaching daily in the temple, even in his Passion Week. He still gave them opportunity after opportunity to escape the wrath to come. God is not unfair. And he is not ungenerous with his offer of grace. And even after his death and resurrection and ascension, for the next 40 years, he sent his apostles to preach the good news of the risen Christ first to the Jews. And then to Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. All the way to the 11th hour, Jesus continues to reveal himself to the world. Why? Because so genuine is his love for sinners and his longing for them to not perish. Every drop of tears from Jesus' eyes and every drop of sweat from his brow in laboring to teach and preach day after day, it was all him pleading with the Jews you cannot bear the judgment that is to come. And so turn to me and be saved. Because this is what was coming. Verse 43, For the days will come upon you, speaking to the city of Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, they will surround you, and they will hem you in on every side. They will crush you. And they will level you to the ground. 
And all of the people, not just the city, not just the fortification, but the people, you and even your children. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not recognize the Messiah. See, Jesus was foretelling in graphic detail exactly what would end up happening in the year 70 AD, as we know from history. Jerusalem was leveled and obliterated by the Romans. And the Jews were massacred as a whole. If you want an idea of what it was like, we have an ancient historic record by a Jewish historian who lived at the time, an ancient Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus. He lived through it. He was in his 30s when the fall of Jerusalem happened. And he died probably around 100 AD. He survived through it, and somehow he gained some sort of favor from the Roman Empire, and he was commissioned by the empire to write a record of what happened to his people. And so Josephus wrote a very long book to record everything in detail, in graphic detail, and he writes in his work, The Jewish War. Let me read a little excerpt for you. That the emperor of Rome ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of the towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west. Which is why, by the way, if you go to Israel today, what do you have there? The western wall. That's the only thing that was remaining. And all the rest of the wall that surrounded the city was so completely razed to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited. And he also writes as it pertains to the people. So all hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged, the children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. The people were starved of every resource of basic subsistence. And they were killed by the sword also. It was carnage and death left and right. And actually there was so much, there was such unimaginable starvation to the point where, as Josephus also records, that mothers and fathers would eat their own offspring out of sheer desperation and famine. Like what happened in 70 AD for the Jews was not just a political event. It was divine judgment. It was the wrath of God upon an unbelieving nation. In fact, everything I've just described to you from the record of Josephus, it's not new. If you go back to the Old Testament law, you read Deuteronomy chapter 28. There with the covenant of, with Israel, there were promised blessings for obedience, but then the curses for disobedience. And if you read through that chapter and under the curses that would come upon Israel, if they should reject God and walk away from him, what God said would happen is exactly what Josephus witnessed. There in Deuteronomy 28, you see the warnings of God's wrath that a merciless foreign nation would besiege them, crush them, hem them in from every side. The people would be so starved of food and drink and life, so much so that they would end up resorting to cannibalism. 
that even the most, and God's language is this, even the most dignified and refined women among you will end up eating her own offspring because of the sheer desperation and the delirium and the insanity of wartime which would overtake them. And all of this is what happened in the 6th century BC when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire because they refused to repent. And that's why the prophet Jeremiah wept as he witnessed. And all this is what happened again in the 1st century AD. And that's why Jesus wept as he prophesied of what would come. Because the judgment of God is unbearable. And on all of this is what will happen to everyone who rejects Christ. And what will happen spiritually and eternity will make the things and the atrocities of earth look like child's play. Because the judgment of God is absolutely unbearable. What happened in 70 AD is still but a shadow, a picture of the eternal judgment that awaits everyone who rejects Jesus' perfect obedience to God's law freely offered to them by faith. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by the law, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Jesus went to the cross, that wooden cross, that tree, hanging there to take upon himself the full outpouring of God's wrath. That in love he gave himself unto suffering and agony and death on the cross. He took the place of sinners he came to save. All who confess and acknowledge it was my sin that put him there. I should be the one on the cross suffering for my sins. But this is my joy and my salvation that Jesus Christ went there in my stead. This is the gospel of God's mercy to rescue sinners from the judgment that they deserve. And if you reject this, there is nothing for you because there is nothing good outside of Christ. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is only chaos and death and eternity of misery because in Jesus Christ alone is life and joy and peace and rest. You see, the judgment of God is so terrifying and so miserable and dark, not because God is dark and terrifying and miserable, but because God's judgment is Him giving sinners over to their depraved desires, to want to be away from God forever, for God to leave them alone. Let me live my own life apart from you. And to refuse to submit to His perfect and loving authority, to want to be outside of His kingly rule. And so when God gives unrepentant sinners over to their sinful desires, there to the darkness they go, away from his presence of holy light and the perfect manifestation of all that is good and beautiful. There to eternal death they go, away from the source and giver of life himself. This is how terrible it is to be outside of Christ. And if you reject Christ, you, you reject all that is good. And there is no answer 
Look, consider Jerusalem. This people that prided themselves, that confided in themselves as being the holy city, the chosen people of God. But when they rejected Jesus as the Christ, they were no different than Sodom and Gomorrah in God's eyes. And his righteous judgment came upon Jerusalem just the same. Because if you are not in Christ, you have no share whatsoever in his presence and blessing. And I'm sure you're all aware of the recent events that occurred in Israel back in October as they were suddenly attacked by Hamas, the Palestinian Islamist militant group situated at the Gaza Strip. Many innocent Israeli citizens were horrifically killed and murdered by Hamas. And in response, the state of Israel has declared war and the conflict is ongoing and heating up as we speak. And undoubtedly, some of you have been wondering, how should we as Christians respond to what happened and what is happening in Israel and the conflict of Israel versus Palestine? How should we think biblically about this? Well, you'll find an array of different opinions, even within the church, depending on different theological perspectives. But first things first, let me just begin with this preface. War is terrible, and no one wins. And so we should be careful to not jump to picking sides and engage in all the foolery of the patterns of this world. Because innocent lives are being lost on both sides. And each life is a name and a face that is beloved by family and friends. And so we should be grieving over war and death, period, irrespective of sides. And also, let's make something clear. Hamas is unquestionably a self-proclaimed, self-proclaimed terrorist group whose outright mission is genocide. They were openly the aggressor in this incident. There's been conflict between Israel and Palestine for many, many years. But in this particular episode, they were especially and blatantly the aggressor. And what they've been doing to those innocent civilian lives, not only just killing them, but the manner in which they've been slaughtering men and women, children and even babies, has been nothing short of barbaric and sheer evil. And I also want to add this. Watching students at Harvard University come together in full support of Hamas shows just how much brainwashing and moral bankruptcy is going on in the universities all over this country. I mean, it's really stunning. But having said all of this, let me make my point. How should we as Christians think about the conflict of Israel versus Hamas? We must understand biblically, both sides are Christ-rejecting peoples. And they both need to equally repent and turn to Jesus of Nazareth by faith. In God's eyes, neither of them have any special favor with him. Because there is nothing outside of Christ. As Christians, we should respond to this tragic crisis 
no differently than the conflicts between any other two nations and peoples in the world. We should be praying for the repentance of both Jews and Arabs alike. Both Jew and Gentile all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look, even if you believe, even if your theological position and view is, is that, that there will be a future conversion of the Jewish people according to God's plan, and if that's your view, that's fine. That's a perfectly valid uh, opinion. If that's your interpretation of redemptive history, even if that's the case, listen, there is nothing that warrants the Jews any special blessing from God until they repent and receive Jesus as the Christ. Because every spiritual blessing is found in Jesus Christ alone, Ephesians chapter 1. And Christian, this is a precious, precious truth for us that we must cling to. Because you cannot fathom how beloved you are by God simply because you are in Christ. That is the sole and sufficient basis for which God takes perfect pleasure in you. Equally, on your best days as a Christian and on your worst days as a Christian. Because blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see, there is nothing outside of Christ because there is everything in Christ. All that is good, all that is peace, all that is holy. And look, in the age of redemptive history, there is only one holy city and it is not in the Middle East. But it is the city of God that spans every nation, tribe, and tongue because it is the assembly of God's people in the name of Jesus Christ, the church. This is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion that God is gathering and building up in his name. And we must pray that more Jews and Arabs and people from all nations would come to Christ by faith and enter his kingdom. Because Christ looks upon the Israelis and the Palestinians just the same with grief and with pity. Regardless of who wins this war, regardless of who's right and wrong in this war, we will all one day face the righteous judge. And if we are without Christ, we will have no answer for our sin and the wrath to come is incomparably greater than any atrocity on earth. As Jesus said earlier in Luke chapter 13, remember there were, to the crowds who had been appalled by the current events of their time when a number of Galilean Jews had been massacred by Pilate. It was a terrorist attack by the Roman governor. But Jesus reminded them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Are you looking at this as, oh, well, maybe it's because these were more righteous people or these are more, more sinful people. Oh, who's right? Oh, which side is right? No, 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 no. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Every disaster, every death, every tragedy, every catastrophe, they are all the same sermon from heaven with Christ preaching to the world through tears. Saying, friend, there is yet a greater wrath to come. Repent and turn to me and be saved. 
If you're here this morning and you have not come to Jesus in repentance and faith, with weeping eyes of love, He is calling you to turn to Him. He does not delight in the thought of you bearing His wrath forever. It grieves His heart. But if you insist on refusing Him to the end, you will bear it. He will cast you out of His presence and He will send you to hell with tears in His eyes. But friend, can't you see? Look into those eyes, pained with sorrow. And see how true His love must be. How real the gospel must be. How serious is the reality of heaven and hell set before you. And how safe it is to be found in Him. And to hide yourself under His wings. Let those holy tears Convince your soul to find a refuge in Him. Bring your sin to Him and let Him save you and bless you with life and joy and peace with God forever unto eternity. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your incomprehensible love for sinners like us that you gave us your Son, the Lord Jesus, to rescue us from the wrath to come. And it's in the horror of your unbearable righteous judgment that we are all the more amazed and we see your astounding love to save us from it, to so genuinely desire our peace and joy and life. I pray for those here who do not know you, who have not come to you, that you would save them from themselves and that you would awaken their souls and hide them in the safety of Christ. And as we, your church, prepare now to take the Lord's Supper, we do so looking into the eyes of Christ, not only weeping over Jerusalem, but Lord Jesus, we see your eyes drenched with sorrow and agony on the cross taking the place of your people, immersing your precious self under the flood of your own judgment and wrath. Lord, as we take the bread and the cup, by which we know and are reminded of how much you gave all of yourself, your very own body and blood for us, Lord, would you renew our minds and assure us that you really took upon every curse of your holy law, And being hidden in Christ, there is for us only and every spiritual blessing from heaven above. Strengthen our faith by this visible sign and seal of your gospel, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.